Production support comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922 with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Good afternoon and welcome to Noon Edition. I'm Mary Catherine Carmichael, usual co-host, host today, filling in for vacationing Bob Salzberg. Today we're going to be talking about unmanned aerial systems, more commonly known as drones. Indiana and Ohio are joining for- forces in hopes the federal government will choose them to create one of six unmanned aerial systems test sites. In the U.S., unmanned aerial systems, or drones, are projected to be a billion-dollar industry, and supporters say they'll bring jobs and money along with them. But others are concerned allowing drones in Indiana could infringe on people's safety and privacy. We'll be talking with several drone experts from the state of Indiana today, uh, four of whom are joined in the stu- joining us in the studio. I'm also joined by Alex Dierkman, who is with WTIU News and is an in- intern and is our first time co-hosting yes. together. Thank you. Welcome, Alex. Joining us here in the studio are Matt Conkler. He's the executive director of the National Center for Complex Operations. And before the show, we were talking that you actually have two titles, and I think your second title actually gives us a little bit better idea of why you're in the studio today. Would you go ahead and tell us what that is and, and explain the connection for us, please, Matt? Certainly. The, uh, the second title is the uh, National Security Consultant to the Indiana Economic Development Corporation. So I serve the former Department of Commerce, the current IEDC, on all things national security related uh, in an attempt to draw business into the state that otherwise is not here. Okay. And clearly with this uh, being a, a potential billion-dollar industry. industry. You have a strong interest in that. Uh, also joining us is Jane Henniger. She's the executive director with the American Civil Liberties Union of Indiana and a, a frequent guest, I guess we could say. You've been in several times, so thanks for being here today, Jane. Thank you for inviting me. Oh, my pleasure. Uh, Dr. Richard Baker, who is visiting us here from Indiana Un- State University. He drove over from Terre Haute today. He's a professor of aviation management and technology. He's also the director of unmanned systems at Indiana State University. And finally, we have Lieutenant Colonel Dave Rader, Aviation Division Chief of Camp Atterbury, Muscatatuck. So welcome, everybody. Thank you for being here today. (laughs) We're going to start out with um, something pretty basic for people like me who are not widely knowledgeable in this area. And we're just going to do Drones 101. Uh, What are they? Who developed them? Why were they developed? And what are their primary uses? Um, Who'd like to start with that? Lieutenant Colonel, would you be interested in starting that or... or, uh, (laughs) Dr. Baker, would you like to do that? Who's brave? Well, I'll take the first step, okay? Um, one of the things that we try to tell people is that these are not just drones. Um, we call them unmanned aerial systems because they go back a long time. Uh, go back as far as 1800s if you look at things as simple as balloons that were sent up for uh, reconnaissance from one, uh, bat- one side of the battlefield to another. Um, in uh, World War One, a lot of people don't realize that an aircraft was actually built by the British that was flown remotely. Uh, that was a, one of the first ones called a remotely piloted aircraft. And then in World War II, uh, not only do everybody know about the um, Germans who had the V1s and the V2s, but also the Americans had a program where we actually converted bomb, uh, bombers that were flown remotely piloted. They were actually taken off from a, a field. The pilots would then bail out after it was successfully taken off, and then they would actually fly it over to Germany. So uh, these have been around a long time. They grew a lot during the uh, Vietnam War, uh, where the United States used them for reconnaissance and flying to see what was going on uh, to do some assessments. And over time, uh, we've started to adapt them to other, uh, other purposes besides just military. In the last uh, 10 to 15 years, we've started growing into agriculture, um, things like uh, looking at real estate, uh, taking pictures from the air for um, um, utilities, making sure we can do inspections of pipelines, things like that. So they're being used in different ways. Um, they're used all around the world in other countries for mostly agriculture, and that's what's growing uh, a big, uh, a, a, at a, a rapid rate. Um, you can look at balloons, uh, fixed-wing aircraft, and helicopters as unmanned aerial vehicles. Interesting. So what is ISU's primary focus as it relates to unmanned? 
Well, ISU has a, a program, an aviation uh, a department of aviation, and we have two majors. Uh, which one is one? Pro, pro, excuse me, professional pilot uh, degree, and the other one is an aviation management degree. Now we have also uh, introduced in the last two years an unmanned systems minor. Our interest was in how do unmanned systems, aerial systems, work, and how can we get jobs for students in the future? How can they work in that field? But we've started branching out to more than just aerial. We do land and water also. So that our students, when they come out, they understand how to operate all three kinds of vehicles. Okay. Uh, Lieutenant Colonel Rader, would you talk about the the military's interest in uh, unmanned aerial systems, please? Well, um, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, primarily, it was uh, initially observation. Uh, we can send something up unmanned, not put a, a soldier or any person in danger, and kind of see what's up ahead. Um, and then it sort of evolved from there And that, well, wow, if we can see these bad guys, it would be helpful if they had other capabilities. And so uh, they quickly uh, developed day-night capability uh, using infrared at night. And then they uh, got a laser designator. Then they got laser pointers, laser, laser range finders. Next thing you know, we start arming them with bombs and missiles. Uh, I'm sure you heard of the Predator, how they shoot the Hellfire missiles. So now we can have them looming and uh, waiting for targets of opportunity. So, uh, um, And now they're actually doing resupply missions. So maybe a hazardous area that's too dangerous to put uh, soldiers or troops in, but we can send a unmanned system, get soldiers that are isolated, the equipment and supplies they need to uh, carry on the battle. Well, Matt, what's the state of Indiana's interest in unmanned aerial systems? Well, I think the state of Indiana has three interests. I think the first is uh, business attraction, business opportunities, the business that will come to Indiana if we're named as one of the six FAA UAS test sites. I think there are um, job opportunities, both direct and indirect. And thirdly, I think there are opportunities for academia. I think there are research and development opportunities. I think Dr. Baker just shared some opportunities that Indiana State is participating in. We've recently been working with Indiana University and some of the other colleges and universities around the state. And so there are a number of opportunities that exist for the state of Indiana. And I might also add that um, the projected economic impact of this industry over the next 10 years is $95 billion. And so that, of course, should uh, make any state aware of the opportunities that exist. Yeah, that's that's a significant impact on our, our local economy, I'm sure, potentially. And yet there are concerns. Jane, would, from the ACLU's perspective, what are some of the concerns that go along with these opportunities? Yeah, Mary Catherine, and, and we just feel that they're healthy concerns. We... Um, at the ACLU and and um, other civil libertarians love technology as much as the rest of us. It's made our lives great and safer and um, and improved it in so many ways. But uh, drones are no different than other technology in that in the sense that we just need to use them wisely. We need to be aware of their capacities and um, think think ahead about. Um, what are those capacities, and how do we plan ahead so that they're they um, they're used in the best possible manner while preserving our privacy and the other things that clearly citizens are worried about? All right, thanks. Well, this is a hot topic that we uh, intend to delve in uh, much more deeply uh, to today. You can join us for live chat at wfiu.org slash noon edition. You can follow us on Twitter at noon edition or call into the program today at 855-0811. Again, that number is 855-0811, wfiu.org slash noon edition for our live chat and uh, at Noon Edition on Twitter if you're interested in joining us in that way. And we will get your questions on the air today. Alex? So a lot of people have predicted a lot of job growth, like you were just saying. And, um, I mean, what kind of jobs are we talking about? Are we talking about specialized skills? Or, you know, what's the impact of the jobs that are going to be coming? Well, I think that's one of the questions that's yet to be asked. But I can just give you some examples. As I mentioned, um, research and development. There is a, a multitude of different areas that, that R&D needs to occur in when it comes to unmanned systems. Keep in mind that when we talk about unmanned systems, we also have to consider the ground components. And Dr. Baker is more of a, an expert in that area than I am. But there, there are robotics components and there are um, human assets and different things on the ground, different uh, assets on the ground that um, will also – be, there'll be the op- opportunities for jobs uh, for um, 
you know, humans and for, for some of the uh, capacities that they fill. But um, I think there are a number of different areas where we can look at jobs. I mean, for example, in the agriculture, um, there, are, there are farms in northern Indiana where the, the equipment is uh, now, you know, run by GPS and, uh, and unmanned systems in some cases. Um, there are other, you know, opportunities for people like firefighters and law enforcement and first responders. And so as the unmanned systems sector grows, then there are sectors in the technology area and in the you know, further advancement um, that also grow. So I think, it's, I think the sky is the limit, really, when it comes to this, to this sector. The, the sky is the limit, but we're, we're talking about unmanned aerial systems test sites. Um, Colonel, since you're here, I assume that Camp Atterbury <clears throat> would be the site that's being offered up uh, as potential for that. And I know you have hundreds and hundreds of acres. It's, a, it's an amazing facility that many Hoosiers really aren't fully familiar with, but, but you have a lot of ground. Tell me how that ground could potentially be used for unmanned systems testing and what the impact on the, that ground would be. Well, uh, the primary purpose of the uh, facilities we have, uh, which in- includes Camp Atterbury, uh, Jefferson Proving Ground also has a large restricted area and we control it all. Uh, also, Muscatatuck, but the primary use is for military training. So okay, we, we let me get, let me ask you a question real quick. But please, uh, so it's a large restricted area, so that includes the ground and airspace above. Correct. Okay. Correct. Go ahead. So, thank you. Yes, and, and that includes uh, the, the ground and airspace above Jefferson Proving Ground, uh, Muscatatuck, and uh, Camp Atterbury. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, the primary use is for military training. Uh, we're trying to get soldiers ready for their missions wherever they need, maybe need to be. Uh, and then secondary, uh, the additional training uh, area or space uh, or times that are available, we would offer those to uh, individuals like uh, civilian entities or, uh, in this case, uh, uh, like Indiana State, to come in and utilize our airspace. Uh, one of the primary um, concerns the FAA has for unmanned systems is that, like a manned aircraft, it has to go through a number of hours of testing. Mm-hmm. Uh, it needs to be safe, reliable, and have some type of um, assurance that the pe- personnel on the ground are safe. Um, well, and that's the same thing for unmanned. So there, there's no no different category for it. So all of these that are testing, the reason they're testing because they're they're unproven. So we would uh, test those within restricted airspace, which has limited uh, collateral damage to uh, you know. The public. Sure. So uh, would you be using existing um, test ground that you already have established, or would this require an expansion of that test ground? It's all existing. There, there's nothing new. It's uh, something we already have, but when we're not using it for military or combat operations or training, it will be then used for the uh, the testing facilities. Okay, thanks. We have a caller on the line. I'd like to go ahead and get to him. Stan, go ahead. Thank you. Um, I, I, I applaud the technology, but... Uh, my concern is the need for education, and not in technological sense, but in moral and ethical sense. We, we, we have a case overseas where helicopter pilots killed unmanned people, I mean, excuse me, uh, non-belligerents. And I wonder what kind of educational system is going to be set up for the people involved in using this technology. Thanks, Dan. Stan, this is Dr. Baker, and uh, I'd like to answer that a little bit in that in our program at Indiana State University, um, we're going to incorporate a, a class which will we're projecting next year to come out with a major in unmanned systems. And part of that degree will be uh, multidiscipline, where we include classes in criminology, criminal justice, earth and environmental sciences, uh, geographical information systems, and so on. And one of the courses that the students will have to take will be developed and put together by our criminology and criminal justice professors, and it will include ethics and and the use of unmanned systems. Thank you. Thank you, Stan. Matt, let's um, look into the economic development aspect of this just a a little deeper, if we could, please. Anytime you're talking about a billion dollars, you're going to get a lot of attention from a lot of people. Times are hard in the United States, and everybody's looking for ways to expand their economy. So clearly, this is going to be a competitive situation. Tell me what the state of Indiana is up against and uh, how this process is going to to proceed as far as finding are there going to be more than more than one location eventually or if you could just expand on that a little bit please certainly and, and i may want to lean on dr baker for some of this as well because he and i are a partner in this endeavor and uh, I, I would like to share that we 
uh, in going after one of these six test sites have recently partnered with the state of Ohio. Mm -hmm. So we have a bi-state partnership, the Indiana-Ohio UAS Test Center, which will essentially uh, direct, manage, and help to operate uh, this endeavor. And, of course, there will be ramifications uh, positively from that that, uh, test center. in as in as much as uh, directing certain you know economic opportunities, industry opportunities between the state of Indiana and Ohio, um, the restricted area in Indiana is the only restricted airspace that's in the test site. So Indiana is home to that. That's one advantage for the state of Indiana. Of course, Ohio has Wright Patterson Air Force Base and the Air Force Research Lab. So we all we have a mixed bag of assets. But as far as the the assets that Indiana brings to the table, they're significant. So you partnered with Indiana to make your bid stronger? Uh, with Ohio. Well, Ohio, yeah. I'm sorry, yes. Ohio. Yeah, yeah. Yes, that's correct. So the, so the direct economic impact, at least the, the studies show um, up to this point, are a couple of hundred million, $200 million, I believe, $208 million, Dr. Baker, um, from the AUVSI report, I think is the, is the impact, impact that's expected within the state in the next couple of years. But, um, you know, we're looking at this holistically. As, I've, as we've mentioned, we're looking at this from an agricultural standpoint. We're looking at this from a first responder standpoint, from a weather forecasting standpoint. So we see multiple applications and multiple opportunities for the state of Indiana. And then when you look at each of those portfolios, you, you take a step back and you look at the research and development side. You look at the, um, you know, the advancement. You look at mm-hmm. – uh, um, in some cases, you know, what are the what – what's the, on the legal side? What are the – you know – there's so there are, the point I'm getting at is there are multiple multiple opportunities within each sector of uh, those things that we'll touch on un, as far as unmanned systems. With whom are you in competition? Well, that's um, we only know the the applications per se have not been publicly uh, made aware other than those who have that have have said we've submitted an application. We believe that there are uh, two dozen or so applicants. But when you look at what's in our region, when you look at those applicants that are in the region, there are, there are none that are um, uh, uh, directly around Indiana, Ohio. There are some that are in the Midwestern region, I'll say. Mm-hmm. But we believe most of our competition is in other corners of the country. Mm-hmm. Is there any ad- advantage to being in the mid- Midwest? I know that um, Crane is located in the Midwest. Is, is kind of a uh, was originally located there. It's kind of a safety feature as much as anything. Do you bring any advantage to the table by being located in the Midwest? Well, I'm a Midwesterner. I'm a Hoosier, <laughs> so of course we do. <laughs> and, well and answered. <laughs> one of the, one of the advantages. I mean, there are advantages to um, to all the sites, and they look at um, topographical. They look at the weather. They look at a number of different aspects. And so I think in that case, yes. I mean, when you're comparing us to um, uh, the Southwest region or to Alaska or North Dakota, mm-hmm. we all bring something different to the table. And I think that's something that we have to offer with the state of Ohio that none of the other applicants may have. Have you been told if there'll be just one uh, recipient of, of this uh, facility or will they have multiple facilities, Dr. Baker? There'll be six uh, that the FAA has been tasked to come up with. Uh, that's in addition to the one that's already in New Mexico, um, kind of administered by New Mexico State University right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the criteria that they have put into the selection is the fact that they want climatological differences. So oh. we're the only one in the Midwest that's come out with like this. So it's an advantage for us. I see. That makes a lot of sense. Now, when I hear agriculture, when I hear aviation, no offense, but Purdue University pops into my head first. Yes. Are they part of this? Uh, Purdue is involved. Um, we are actually working with Purdue, and we have a meeting at the end of the month to see what we can do to team up and do even more in this area. Mm-hmm. Um, we also have asked or been asked by Butler, Ball State, um, and one other small university somewhere in the, in the Midwest here to work with them in agriculture. Uh, we've been asked by the uh, University of Louisville to work with them on uh, first responders, support for first responders. And we're working also with the University of Dayton Research Institute on uh, support for both uh, agriculture and first responders. Okay, great. We've done a, a, we're going to continue for the next few minutes before we go to break to kind of lay a groundwork. And then I think, um, Jane, we're going to bring you into the conversation a little bit more after the break. Um, did you have anything you wanted to? Oh, I was just. I was going to direct it to Jane, um, just kind of asking about the privacy, and we're probably going to expand on that after the break, but um, do you just have anything, any concerns as you're hearing our other guests talk? 
right now? Well, I think my, my concerns are the ones that lots of citizens have expressed both in and, and, um, and lawmakers, both here in Indiana and across the country. We just, uh, with the expanding use of technology, with the, the idea that drones can be of any size, you don't necessarily, um, it's not something that's going to you're going to know is over your shoulder. And, and, and I think that, that transparency is the best way to address those concerns, both um, you know, through or, um, efforts like we've been hearing about, but also through um, a, a, an intentional uh, steps by the government to set down the plane rules so that people can f- feel comfortable that they're not drones aren't going to be misused either by the government or by private individuals. That you make a, bring up a great point and one that I'd like to address before we go to break. What is uh, the governor's office and uh, our state government? What where are they? What part of the process are they playing? Um, um, do you want to start with that, Matt? Well, certainly. Um, and I can't speak directly for the governor or the lieutenant governor, but I can tell you that they are aware and that the governor was um, has been in contact with the governor in the state of Ohio. They've signed an agreement that recognizes the Indiana-Ohio UAS Test Center, and the governor is being uh, kept abreast, as well as the lieutenant governor, on all the activities that are transpiring within this portfolio. Mm-hmm. So- Go ahead, and, yeah, and I would just add that that um, there is a there was a Senate resolution that was um, passed for a study commission um, summer by, study committee, right? Exactly uh-huh. by the last general assembly session, and and it was very brief, two or three sentences, but it said technology is great, drones have a great capacity both for um, helping our society as well as encouraging our economy, but we have some concerns and so we'd like to study that. So there are legislators who have said, you know, let's just be thoughtful about how we approach this. Mm-hmm. And Go ahead, Matt. You know, there is one uh, point we should make, too, about Indiana, and Indiana is extremely unique when it comes to, to the potential of a test site here, and that is that all of the property that is below our restricted airspace, the state owns, mm-hmm. with the exception of 4,000 acres on the south side of Jefferson Proving Ground. So as far as inhabited areas, uh, residential areas, there are none. Mm-hmm. And that's a, that's a positive thing as far as we see it for hosting a testing and training area. Okay. Uh, go ahead, Dr. Baker. Do you have something you want to add? No, I think uh, Matt hit it right on the head and that we have to emphasize that. Okay. And I, I would just say that I, I think that, that – Testing and understanding technology is great, and and I think um, the ACLU's concern and the concerns of, of citizens are sort of the next step. So um, I think that that um, the the Indiana being on the forefront of thinking about how this can fit into our, our economy and how we can be in the cutting edge of the technology, I think that's all great, and we're just encouraging that. Once we've developed these tools, we know they're going to be used. They're, they're incredible. So let's think about how they're used once they're out of the hands of, of the testing. Okay. I think uh, after the break, we'll talk a little bit about the constitutionality of drones and, and some of the issues that have arisen uh, along there, because I think that if we're going to take a holistic look at that, we need to, to talk about that a little bit. Um, but I will say I'm very interested to learn more about the agricultural and other uh, non-military uh, applications for this as well. Uh, please, if you'd like to join us on the second half of the program, you can join us for a live chat at WFIU.org slash Noon Edition. You can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition or call into the program at 855-0811. That's area code 812-855-0811. We're going to go ahead and take a brief break and we'll be back shortly. Thank you. You're listening to Noon Edition. This is Noon Edition on WFIU. Production support comes from Smithville. Information at smithville.net. You can take WFIU with you by downloading our podcasts directly to your PC, Mac, or MP3 player. Programs such as Noon Edition, Ask the Mayor, and Harmonia, and short features like Kinsey Confidential, the Ether Game Musical Mini Quiz, and Play and Opera Reviews are all available on demand. Pick them up at WFIU.org. And have you heard WFIU's news features? The WFIU news team brings you expanded and in-depth reports on topics affecting South Central Indiana. 
Catch the Friday feature just after 8.30 during Morning Edition, just before Noon Edition, and at 5.45 during All Things Considered. They're also archived on our website, WFIU.org. And we're back. Welcome back to Noon Edition in what seemed like a lightning fast break. We've got a full studio and a lot of stuff going on here. I'm Mary Catherine Carmichael filling in for vacationing Bob Salzberg. I'm joined in the studio with Alex Dierkman, who is a WTIU News intern. Welcome. Mm -hmm. It's our first time to co-host together. We're having a good time. Uh, Today we're talking about unmanned aerial systems, uh, more commonly known as drones. Uh, Indiana and Ohio are joining forces uh, in hopes that the federal government will choose them to create one of six unmanned aerial systems test sites. This is potentially a billion-dollar industry, so there is, as you can imagine, a great deal of interest in this. Um, We are joined in the studio by four guests. We have Matt Conkler, the executive director of the National Center for Complex Operations, Jane Henniger, who is the executive director of the American Civil Liberties Union of Indiana, Dr. Richard Baker, Professor, Aviation Management and Technology from Indiana State University. He's also the Director of Unmanned Systems at Indiana University. And Lieutenant Colonel Dave Rader, Aviation Division Chief, Camp Atterbury, Miskatatuck. Thank you. Nobody ran out of the studio during break. You're all back for the second <laughs> half, so I guess that's a, that's a good sign. Uh, we're going to talk. Uh, we've we've kind of done a nice overview, I think, during the first uh, half of the show about uh, drones, uh, their evolution, uh, some of the potential uses for them, both uh, military and um, well, not military, domestic. I guess I don't know how else you put it. Agriculture and and other functions. Um, I think we're going to get second half of the show. We'll talk a little bit more, Jane. You'll probably talk more the second half. We're going to talk about some of the concerns of drones. But before we do that, let's let's just talk about during the break. Alex and I were were saying, well, what does a drone look like? You know, is this something that you said, you know, it could be nearby and, and we wouldn't even know it. Let's talk about that. I understand there's a great deal of diversity among uh, unmanned aerial systems. But let's, let's talk about for the regular person, what does that mean? Well, as I stated earlier, uh, they can be a balloon, they can be a fixed-wing aircraft, or they can be a helicopter. Uh, you can see them in different configurations, and they can come in all sizes. Um, Smallest? As small as as small as uh, I've been to Wright State University. They're doing research and actually building uh, small unmanned systems that are uh, the size of a bug, like a ladybug. Um, They're very, very small. It's a little creepy. It's a little creepy. (laughs) Uh, But remember, the smaller it gets, the less it can carry, too. So uh, they can only be up so long, so much power. Uh, And and they can go to the other extreme, which is uh, as large as a Boeing 737, uh, the Global Hawk, one of the largest... So uh, they come in all sizes and all shapes. Okay. Alex, did you have follow-up? Oh, I was just going to ask. Um, this is probably a good question for you, Lieutenant. Um, I mean, what when people are testing, I mean, what are we talking about? Are we talking about are we going to be releasing, you know, weapons from the drones? Or what, what does this look like? Well, it starts, uh, believe it or not, in the classroom. So there's a lot of design and research that before they even get to um, where they're actually putting it up in the air. So... Um, uh, and then you're, you're testing the, the platform initially, um, and that's the actual system that's flying in the air. So before any type of observation or weapons or, or bombs or anything put on it, they're making sure they have a, a viable platform to fly it. And then it, it evolves from there all the way up to the point where it's used in, in whatever its mission is going to be. So, but explosions, you know, what happens at the, at the test site? Well, uh, that's one of the things that can happen. <laughs> but uh, typically, uh, it's, it's quite boring. Uh, they're going up and flying. And you would think they're flying uh, their RC plane from the, the, the toy store. Uh, mm-hmm. But it's, uh, uh, they're, they're looking at the imagery they're getting from it, or, or they're just looking at, as they put in uh, control functions, that it's doing what it's supposed to do, uh, flying the altitudes or the airspeeds or the routes. Uh, there's a number of, of, of uh, test um, uh, steps it has to, uh, to pass. Uh, before it gets certified. Okay. Well, we have a couple of callers on the line. I'm going to give you the phone number one more time. So if you have a question that you'd like to have answered, our panel of guests can do that for you. Our number here is 855-0811. And we're going to start with Al. Thanks for calling, Al. Go right ahead. Yes. Well, thank you for your information. I understand the 
technical uses for commercial use, but you have not really discussed the other question, which is the Pandora box that you're opening here. What's going to stop these drones being sold to some other countries, which they will be, and it gets a hold of a terrorist. And I understand they can last 24 hours or longer. What's going to stop them from having a bomb getting loose and just flying to the United States and taking out the Empire State Building or the Pentagon or who knows where? Or even worse, they have the capability of carrying an atom bomb. What are the safeguards? I don't see any. Thanks, Al. That's just what we wanted to get into this half of the the show. I really appreciate you bringing that question. Who wants it? <laughs> okay, I'll take the potato. Um, hot potato time. Uh, one of the things that uh, people worry about is exactly what uh, Al's brought up. And they're the same safeguards with unmanned systems that they are with manned systems. Uh, what's to keep somebody with a one, from taking a 172 and putting an atom bomb and going someplace with it? Same issues that we have today with manned. Uh, people have to be involved, and people have to be involved with the work um, legally, uh, ethics um, and all the background, the training and so on to keep that safe. And we have to have law enforcement to be able to help that too. So it's the same things that are in place for the manned systems. Al, did you want to follow up on that? Yes, I don't agree with what he said. You, you know, these things will be sold overseas and elsewhere. And you can't, how are you going to stop a terrorist from saying, okay, this is agricultural use? Instead, we'll stick a bomb in it and we change the, the technology and, and now you can have. Uh, you know, device, uh, devices that will take you anywhere. And now you have a bomb going to the United States. I don't see any controls whatsoever. So is it the, the, the long-distance capabilities of these, uh, along with their violent capacity, uh, potential, I guess I should say, that uh, gives you the most concern? Yes, it does. I mean, despite the fact that you train our people and ours to have ethics and so forth, you don't have the same ethics with a terrorist. I'm sorry. I just cannot agree with the person. This is a Pandora's box, which has yet to be examined, and I don't see the controls. And I think, don't say we have our people trained. You don't have a terrorist trained. They know how to kill us. I'm sorry. All right. Thank you for your call, Al. I appreciate your point of view. Let's go next to Ryan. Thanks for holding, Ryan. Go ahead. Hi. Um, my, my question is about uh, the nature of I guess sort of the state of the technology. I know they're described as unmanned because I think most of the ones that we we see about and hear about on the news are essentially remote controlled. There's not a person actually piloting it in the physical flying object itself. Um, are there currently autonomous drones? And what do you imagine the sort of timeline for those would be if those don't exist already? And uh, kind of a, I'll go ahead and give it like a, a follow up to that, and then I'll, I'll get off the line. Um, and that is uh, sort of related to uh, the last caller's question. It is, are there other technologies that are being developed and will be tested, um, hopefully here in Indiana, <laughs> um, that are sort of counters to these, in this, I guess in sort of a military sense, that uh, are things that maybe you know, we don't know about yet or haven't thought of? Thanks. Thank you. Dr. Baker, you get the hot potato again because I saw you shaking your head. <laughs> oh, I was thinking of the second part of the question first, okay. and that is uh, there are developments going on in other countries. Uh, there's a lot of research and development being done by many countries, both friendly and unfriendly, um, and it's going on all around the world. As a matter of fact, one of the things that we've been uh, concerned about in the United States is the fact that without the integration into the national airspace by the FAA, that we're being held back in our development and ability to develop. Uh, correctly use the technology and, and develop that way. Um, explain that countries. a little bit. By, by the integration into the FAA, explain that point a little bit for me. Well, without the integration in the F, into the national airspace, um, there's, there aren't places for companies that build these aircraft to be able to develop them, to do the testing. That's why we want to have the FAA test sites, so we can actually develop them and, and use them and see how to use the technology. Okay, thanks. Okay? Yeah. So what's happening in other countries without that restriction they're actually getting ahead of us in this technology area. So that, from a military perspective, certainly, as well as a, an agricultural and other perspective, that's, that's got to be a real source of concern for the military. Whenever an, an, somebody else has technology, we don't have. Nice. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, and also, um, they were mentioning counter, i.e., correction, um, 
uh, unmanned systems. There are um, systems, you know, we can't talk about classified systems, obviously, but uh, mm-hmm. there are systems being designed that will actually go up and look for enemy unmanned systems. So the gentleman that called that uh, wanted to know what are we doing if a bad guy were sent one over, we have systems that will go and look for bad guy systems and, and destroy them. Uh, also, uh, maybe not in the kinetic sense where it's actually destroying, but interrupts its its signal control or its EM, uh, electromagnetic uh, magnetic spectrum. So mm-hmm. uh, it isn't controlled as they intended it to. So we have uh, counters in place. And, and a little bit back to the, the first part of our caller's question. Uh, I think a lot of us kind of picture these. You mentioned remote control earlier, RC planes. That's something everybody's familiar with. And, and so, you know, you can picture somebody with a joystick uh, directing these things around or, or something along those lines, a keyboard, uh, what have you. But uh, is that really the where technology is right now? Or is he right? Has it gone beyond that where they're pre-programmed and they have a, a place to go and they know to go there? Uh, both. Uh, okay. We we do both. We have a pre-programmed, uh, maybe a, uh, like along the border with the United States and Mexico. There are pre-planned routes there that the uh, the predators are flying, uh, and that's primarily observation, obviously. But um, it there isn't someone sitting there turning it. You know, it already knows what it's going to do. So uh, the the, um, uh, the the hands-on portion would just be during the takeoff and landing. Okay. Anybody want to yeah. add to that? We're looking at um, autonomy across the board. There's everything from uh, no autonomous movement where everything is manual all the way to completely autonomous, and we're defining those. Right now, we're not flying anything completely autonomous. We're calling it trusted autonomy, and we haven't got a way to test test that. Uh, How do you keep um, a robot from going off and doing something it's not supposed to do? Well, we keep the people in the loop, mm-hmm. and that's that's why we're doing it without the complete autonomy. Okay, great. We've got another caller on the phone. We're going to go right ahead and get Steve on the line. Hi, Steve. Hello. Hi. Um, I, I just joined the program here a few minutes ago, and then maybe uh, rehashing some of the stuff you already talked about, but I was concerned about air, airspace safety. Uh, how are you maintaining, when the drones are operating, how are you maintaining safe operations with respect to other aircraft in the area? Colonel Baker, would you handle that one for us, please? Uh, <laughs> oh, it, it really, I am really he, am. He Colonel is a Baker. colonel, but. Uh, <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. Oh, oh that are Raider. Raider. Two minutes. He's triple headed. Yeah. <laughs> Educator, former military, and PhD. He must have been channeling that to yeah. me. Sorry. Well, well obviously, the, the sea and the void isn't there. Um, so, what we're doing with these six test sites being in restricted airspace, anyone who um, isn't part of the actual training or, or mission wouldn't be there. But as far as the, uh, the civilian applications, there are uh, uh, transponders, uh, same thing that uh, manned aircraft have. These uh, uh, unmanned systems would have, too, so they can be tracked. Um, uh, then uh, it's really a simply observation. Uh, they'll either put a chase airplane up with it or they'll have ground observers that are looking out for uh, other aircraft that are not participating in the uh, actual activity. Okay. Any follow-up, Steve? Thank you. All right. Thanks for your call. Jane, uh, we talked earlier, alluded to the fact we wanted to talk a little bit about some constitutionality uh, issues as they relate to drones. Uh, specifically, I think probably more toward the the uh, uh, use of drones in uh, assassinations. Uh, but how do how do how do these issues play out locally? Uh, and what is the ACLU's concerns? What are th- the ACLU's y- concerns? Yeah, the the. I think the primary concern across the country is uh, actually the use of drones for um, local public safety mm-hmm. and whether they um, will be used to um, observe and gather and use information in a way that um, uh, law enforcement's not allowed to gather that information now. So the draft legislation that I think was introduced in Ohio and, and, and there are models all across the country were uh, look to those traditional safeguards that we've developed over the years to safeguard the Fourth Amendment and other constitutional protections. Warrants. So if you're going to gather and use information, then you need a warrant. You need to justify the the intrusion on someone's privacy in that way. We, we, we recommend policies about sharing and retaining and using that, that information for a variety of purposes. And, and the draft legislation, of course, makes exceptions for emergencies, just as there are exceptions for um, 
using a warrant to enter someone's house or using a warrant to tap a, a phone line or or um, or track a vehicle. Um, the the we also recommend um, uh, audits so that we can learn from the development of this technology because it's so new. We don't know uh, w- w- what its capacity is, and both for, for good and f- for it to go awry. So we've learned from, hopefully, from the history of wiretapping on phones that you know, maybe if we think ahead and we ask ourselves, what was the use of, of um, the information garnered from from um, drones, mm-hmm. and um, and what did it turn out to be helpful to law enforcement or for other purposes? And so maybe we can try to capture that information and and, and again uh, create that transparency that will um, uh, allay people's concerns about drones hovering over them and well, and yeah. getting up in their business. Well, right. I mean, it almost changes the possibility of a drone outside your window looking in your window with a camera almost reshapes the whole expectation of, of privacy. Right, right. Well, we, were, we were talking during the break about the fact that, that the perhaps the unintended business entrepreneurial aspect of, of developing drones <laughs> uh, is that uh, entrepreneurs are saying, well, maybe we should have you, you might want to buy a drone detector, and and so that you can put it outside your window, so that if if someone's trying to peek in your window, your drone detector will sound an alarm, and you'll know to draw your curtains, and you'll you'll chase the drones off. So so clearly, people are are thinking exactly that. You know, how do I protect myself? How do I? And and you know, and lots of people want privacy. And they're doing what they're doing is absolutely legal. They just want to keep it private. Right. Sure. Let's go to another caller. We have Jay's been holding. Thanks for holding, Jay. Please go ahead. Oh uh, yes, uh, my question may have already been addressed. I haven't heard the whole show, but I was wondering what restrictions or requirements are in place or being considered for the personal, you know, development and construction of drones. If someone can someone. When you build one in their garage and you know use it for whatever intention, um, was that something? No, we actually haven't covered that, Jay. Thanks for bringing that up. Okay. Sort of the commercial I'll just use. Answer off the off air. Um, I just was curious if there was anything in place, Doctor Colonel Baker. For a drone. <laughs> <laughs> okay, thank you. Uh, the only thing that's in place today is the fact that you're not allowed to fly an aircraft unless it's passed its airworthiness certificate with the FAA. You can't fly to the national airspace unless you have FAA approval. Um, so basically, those are the rules. And uh, yes, you can build it in your garage. And do you want to go out and fly it? Uh, you probably want to, but are you supposed to? No. Um, the FAA doesn't allow you to do that. But drones are unmanned aerial systems. I'm trying to retrain yes. myself. It's going poorly, <laughs> as you can see. Unmanned aerial systems seem like first cousins to the RC planes that that we were discussing. And I don't know anybody who has an RC plane that contacts the FAA before they go out to fly it. Most of the people that in, uh, fly RC planes belong to a club, and they actually have their own rules and their own certificate. Uh, it's called... Uh, It's an AMA, and I don't remember what the acronym stands for. But they actually do get trained, and they actually pass some uh, tests, and they actually get uh, a place to go fly with their own little uh, airport. Uh, Most towns have an RC airport of some kind. So uh, there are some – it's not real legislation, but it's uh, (laughs) – I think YouTube might take issue with it. The the, uh, (laughs) difference between an RC plane and an unmanned system, uh, or uh, civilians call them drones – is the intent of it. Um, an RC plane is recreational. They're going out to fly for the enjoyment. An unmanned system, you're, you're observing something or you're, you're somehow collecting information. That's the difference. So the intent is okay. what will get you in trouble. It's pleasure versus getting a job done, whatever Correct. that job may Correct. be. All right, fair enough. That's a good <laughs> distinction to make. I appreciate you doing that. All right, we have another caller on the line. Let's go to Tim. Hi, Tim. Hi, how are you all? Great. Thanks for calling. How can we help? I'm not sure these, this will be very well received by a group there, but I teach ethics at Ivy Tech Community College here in Bloomington. One of my students this last week presented a project in which he considered the uh, loss of privacy as uh, one of the greatest uh, ethical issues of the 21st century. Another one posts on the Facebook page 
about the increasing uh, militarization of police forces. And it just seems to me the younger generation, and myself included, feel that whenever we say something is security, uh, this article is saying, you know, all you can get all the money you want to militarize your police forces. And it is a trend that I find very upsetting, very destructive to our common welfare. And I'd like to hear some response on that. Thank you, Tim. Well, I would jump in and say that I, I share their, the concerns of your students and, and your concern. The, the, I, this has always existed, this tension between the privacy of individuals and the need for security, whether it's in our neighborhoods or it's a national security issue. And that's a tension that we're always going to have as a society. And so it's better to confront it and, and, um, on both sides. So we, we should never let our, our enthusiasm for for technology make us forget what we value as individuals, but neither should we live in so fearful of one another and fearful, quite honestly, of our government that we, that we shun um, technology and the ways that it can improve our lives. I think it's healthy to ask those, those questions. Are we striking the right balance? Is this too much? And, um, you know, we, we, this is both something that we'll have to learn along the way. Drones, are, it's just beginning this this technology. Um, but we need to, to be vigilant and ask that question. I think that one of the, the big concerns is that there that if we don't do this properly, there'll be a continued perception of the erosion of our privacy and a perception that we have to submit to ongoing constant surveillance and and we don't want people to give up and have them think that that they just need to check their rights um, away in order to be safe but but this is a healthy debate that's gone on since um, you know the British tried to quarter soldiers in our homes mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but I mean this is a great discussion because our this dialogue needs to happen it needs to happen at the local level it needs to happen at the state level it needs to happen at the national level. And I don't typically commend the current administration, but I will commend the current administration and the FAA and the Department of Defense because that's what they intend to happen with these test sites is for this dialogue to to grow. And this is not just about flying aircraft in restricted airspace. This is about, as Lieutenant Colonel Rader mentioned, uh, the classroom setting, having this dialogue nationally and trying to find out, um, you know, what concerns – there are and and how we deal with those and and uh, who um, you know how this this technology is used regulated managed and uh, so on and so forth so it's very important that we continue to have this dialogue and that is part of the test site effort yeah I think this is going to be a challenge for a lot of people not the least of whom will be our legislators because uh, I think there are so many uh, unknowns about this as a new emerging technology that this is this is they're going to have a tiger by the tail on this and go ahead Jen. yeah I just wanted to point out that I think this is one of those rare increasingly rare topics that there's it's a totally bipartisan uh, everyone has on all sides of the aisle or aisles have um, different views and 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 share concerns so uh, I think that for the students for Tim's students uh, we just need to encourage people to talk to their legislators because again it's not a partisan issue there uh, the the resolu- Senate resolution saying that we should look at the privacy concerns were was introduced by some of our more conser- most conservative um, representatives in the in the General Assembly, and and you know certainly there are people um, uh, on the other extreme that are equally concerned about privacy. So this is one of those those issues where it's not partisan divide is not going to be the thing that that keeps right. us apart. Tim, did you have any follow up? Uh, I think your discussion is wonderful, edifying, and uh, right on. And thanks for bringing this out into the open and and letting the ethical and moral dimensions be considered along with just the technological. Thanks for your participation. We appreciate it. WFIU.org slash Noon Edition. If you'd like to get a quick chat in or you can call us quickly. We only have a few minutes left in the show. 855-0811. And I was just... I was just thinking of that importance of the dialogue and, and thinking of what we've covered. I mean, we've talked about the, uh, you know, we didn't even know the range of the size being from, you know, large, you know, huge planes to, you know, just as small as a bug. And I think, you know, we, we can, are concerned about our privacy. We don't even know what we're concerned with because we don't even know what, 
like at least we don't <laughs> sitting here we, we don't know what we're even dealing with and it's um it's concerning and i think you know we've i mean is that what you are you know bringing out to the public is that what your concerns are yeah and you know i, I think that this effort this it, it can certainly be as matt said part of the testing process that that it's the public needs to learn about what are these these um, vehicles actually are and what their capacity are and I think just with so many other things once we understand once we share knowledge once there's transparency a lot of these concerns will dissipate because they're not then it's it's probably not don't have to be worried about people looking in our window but but we should think about what what are the realistic concerns and how do we address those. Okay. We have one last caller we're going to try to get on very quickly. Bill, go ahead. I need you to be quick. Okay. Uh, real quick, number one, uh, good opportunity to join the ACLU. Uh, somebody's going to be looking out for us. Second Thank you. Second thing is, though, who's, gonna, who's going to uh, – what, what are you going to do as far as keeping drones from being uh, hacked, if you will, and taken under control by somebody who's going to do something bad with them? Well, um, one of the, the, the big things is, um, uh, like the military, we have uh, secure channels. We have um, uh, ways that uh, once uh, it looks like either we're being jammed, the, the systems has pre-programmed routes and uh, procedures that it will do uh, to, to not let it be uh, um, taken control of by, uh, by an outside entity. Uh, but the, the the civilian ones uh, that would be uh, more of a challenge because uh, with uh, more security and protections comes expense. So uh, that that's uh, yet to be determined, and you know we'll have to see what what happens there with the, the uh, technology. All right, we're going to have to end on that note. I want to thank all of our guests for being here today: Matt Conkler from the National Center for Complex Operations, Jane Henniger from the American Civil Liberties Union, Dr. Richard Baker, who I also uh, credited with his military service, and thank you for <laughs> for both of those from Indiana University, Lieutenant Colonel Dave Rader from Camp Atterbury, Miskatatuck. I want to thank my co-hosts Alex Dierkman from WTIU News, producers Gretchen Frazee and Emily Wright. And our engineer, Mike Pashkash, you've been listening to Noon Edition. Back next week. Thanks. Noon Edition is a production of WFIU and the Herald Times. A podcast of this and other WFIU programs is available at WFIU.org. Production support comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922 with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net.